0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Amos chapter 1. This morning, our reading will be our text for the sermon. Amos 1, the verses 3 to chapter 2, verse 16. And so we'll keep the reading and the text reading together. So Amos chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire upon the house of Hazael... That will consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon. And the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aaron will go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Eden. I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines is dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she sold whole communities of captives to Eden, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire upon the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Eden, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion. Because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire upon t that will consume the fortresses of Basra. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he ripped open the pregnant woman of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will send fire upon the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of the battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile. He and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire upon Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kirioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah... Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine as fines, taken as fines. I destroyed the Amorite before them. Though he was tall as cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. I brought you out of Egypt. I led you forty years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I'll crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, imagine this scenario with me for a moment. There's a judge in a small city. This judge is a fine, upstanding gentleman. He's a good man, and he works tirelessly in his role as judge to bring justice upon the city that he presides over. Now this judge has a son, an adopted son, whom he received at a young age. And this judge has poured his life, his heart and his soul into raising up this son into a fine young man. Well, one day, this judge, many years after having adopted that son, this judge sits on his bench and in front of him stand ten men, ten gang leaders. After years of gang warfare, Of bloodshed and violence. Finally, these ten ringleaders have been arrested, and they, na- they now stand before him, all of them. And to the one end of these ten men, the last man in line stands that judge's very own son, the one whom he loved and whom he cared for. Well, you can just imagine the scene. As the evidence is presented and it's overwhelming, The case against these murdering thieves and drug dealers is watertight. The judge begins to sentence them, one by one. Three counts of first-degree murder, drug trafficking, life in prison, no parole, and he goes down the line. But of course, as each sentence is given, as much as this judge stands for justice, and wants to see that carried out on each one of these gang leaders, his mind is not really on them. His mind is at the end of the line, where his son stands. As the judge delivers each sentence to each one of these men, he's really speaking to his son. And then finally, the judge comes to his own son, his adopted son, the one whom he loved. Now stands as a convicted criminal. Of course, he's still a loving father, and he's in agony about what is the crimes that his son has committed, but he's also a just judge. My son, these other men are common criminals. They've had horrible lives of abuse and pain, but you are my son. You had the privilege of living in my house with all the benefits of that. I gave you the best life you could have. I adopted you from this sort of life into a much better one. But you have rejected it and you've rejected me. And so your sentence will be worse than theirs. And so he hands down the sentence. In a similar way, in our text this morning, the Lord addresses Israel. He calls down judgments on the nations, because indeed, he is the God who rules and judges them. But even as he speaks these words of judgment upon the nations, his attention is focused squarely on his own people, the people of Israel, the people he has chosen as his very own, whom he brought out of Egypt, whom he redeemed. I preach to you the word of God under this theme. This is what Amos says to Israel. The Lord who rules and judges all people rules and judges you, especially. The Lord who rules and judges all people all over the world, especially rules and judges you. And we'll see two things. The Lord's case against the nations and the Lord's case against his own people, Israel. So first, the Lord's case against the nations. Like the judge passing down the sentence upon those criminals, so the Lord of heaven and earth passes down His judgments upon the nations. But of course, even as He speaks to them, He is speaking to His own people, to Israel. Remember, in the very first words of this prophecy, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel. His message here is to Israel. But why? Why do this? Why hand down the sentence to the nations, which is a true sentence? Indeed, they stand guilty and convicted. But why speak it to His people Israel? Well, for one main reason. And that is that the Lord wants to reveal Himself to His people Israel. He wants them to know what sort of God He is. He wants to show them who He is. Who God is. Well, who is God as He's revealed in these judgments against the nations? Well, first of all, He's the God who rules all people. Even if they don't recognize Him, He is the God who rules all people. That fact is highlighted each and every time at that formula you see before each oracle of judgment against a nation For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. That word that's used for sin there could be translated rebellion. Rebellion. At the root of that word is a breach of relationship. A breach of relationship. Each nation here, the Syrians, the Philistines, Tyre, Edom, Moab, Ammon, they've all rebelled against the rule, the rightful rule, Of the Almighty God. He is their rightful Lord. He is the God who even has a relationship with those foreign pagan nations. He has a relationship with them. And that relationship is grounded in their creation in the image of God. All men, all women, all children on this earth, whoever is born onto this world, (coughs) is created. In the image of God. Notice. That all the crimes that these nations commit. Are crimes against humanity. Murder. Slavery. And savagery. Well why would God condemn the nations for these particular crimes? Well it's because those were the things that they were forbidden to do. And they were forbidden all the way back. In the covenant that God made with Noah. From whom all the nations of the earth come. Genesis 9, verse 6. God said to Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. When God made Adam, the first man, he made him in his own image. That is, he made him to reflect his own righteousness and wisdom and justice, among other things. Now, of course, after the fall into sin, that image, that reflection of the Almighty God has been shattered, has been broken, so that it's barely recognizable anymore. But it's still there, inherent in each and every man, woman, and child on this earth. And it reflects the Almighty God, even though it's hard to see now that that image is broken, and it shows God's rightful rulership over them. He is the ruler of all whom he has made in his image. So God has a relationship with these nations. And that relationship is further heightened by the tightening spiral of these judgments. Notice that it begins with outright heathen nations. But then it comes closer to home for the Israelites as God works through them. It comes even through the covenant with Abraham. You see that as we come to Edom who descends from Esau. Or from Ammon, who descends from Lot. And Moab as well. So as the Israelites look out at the storms of judgment that are brewing around them as the prophet Amos brings that judgment, they look out on that. As the catalog of these nations swirls in an ever-tightening loop, they are reminded that God is the rightful ruler of of all those nations and all those people. So he's the God who rules all people. He's also the God who sees the wickedness of men. You see, the list of sins here among these, that these nations have done is only meant to be illustrative. There are many other sins that could have been listed that they did against the Almighty God. But the Spirit of God highlights for Amos a few of them and they are gross sins for sure. Think of the atrocities done against Gilead that are mentioned here. That Damascus actually made the people of Gilead lie down on the ground, and then they took threshing equipment, harvest equipment, and they ran over these people with those sharp iron teeth, threshed them to bits. Or of what Ammon did also to the people of Gilead. Ripping open the stomachs of pregnant women it makes you sick. While Amos's catalog of sins here speaks of an ancient time and ancient methods of brutality, but have things really improved much in our world? Even today, in our so called advanced society, where we should be far beyond these sort of things, we're not. We're not. And we see these terrible crimes against humanity done all the time, whether it's through explosives trapped, strapped to bodies, whether it's through outright genocide, whether it's through nuclear or biological weapons, whether it's with little syringes full of poison, whether it's done with forceps and scalpels in the operating room. That's not to mention all the horrible things that have been done in the name of wars and revolutions that constantly rage in our world, even today. But God is a God who sees this wickedness. He sees it. And thirdly, he's a God who punishes wickedness. Every prophecy here about the nation speaks of judgment. You hear in each of those pronouncements like a chorus those same, same words. I will send fire. I will send fire. I will send fire. And fire is, of course, significant in two ways. First of all, fire is a sign of absolute destruction, of total destruction. When a conquering army was able to set a city or town on fire, it meant that it would be razed to the ground completely and destroyed. Second, fire is symbolic of God's presence. Think of Exodus 3, God shows himself to Moses in the burning bush. Or think of God as the pillar of fire before the people of Israel in the desert. By speaking of fire, Amos makes clear that this judgment of the Lord comes from God. It certainly does. Well, God is the God who punishes wickedness and who carries out his word. And all these nations would be destroyed. They'd be destroyed by the Assyrians, the rod of God's wrath. Their brutal crimes were paid for when the Syrian war machine drove over their countries and their people and took them captive into exile. But ultimately, their judgment was not even then complete. It wasn't even complete then. God's judgment, his ultimate judgment, is reserved for the last day, the day of the Lord. On that day, all who do not recognize God's rulership over their lives, all who do not put their hope in Jesus Christ, will be punished. They will suffer judgment. And they'll be without an excuse. Because they have a relationship with God. Because they're made in the image of God. Because they also know God from what has been made, but their foolish minds and hearts distort it. And they don't worship him. While Amos delivers these words that reveal God, the ruler and judge of the nations, he's also doing so in contrast to the God that the Israelites are serving. You see, the Israelites weren't serving the true God. Remember that these people were very religious. They, They had a whole cultic system set up at Bethel with a golden calf and a high priest and many other things as well. But they weren't serving the true God. They were serving idols. They were serving a figment of their own imagination. And that figment of their imagination was not anywhere close to the God that Amos was proclaiming. Their God was not a God who cared about the world, who actually cared what was going on in other nations and other communities, even among the enemies of Israel. Their God was small. They only cared about them. And he wasn't real. And so as Amos speaks to the Israelites, as he speaks about these judgments against the nations, he's opening up vistas for them that they had never realized before. He's showing them a picture of a God who is far larger than the so-called God that they worship. Far larger than their puny little idols. Far more holy and just than they could ever imagine. He's not only the Lord who blesses and curses His own people. He's also the God who will hold the whole world to account on His great day. Well, if this was the message for the people in Amos' time, how much more so in our time? Who is the God that we serve? Is He truly God? Is He the God who rules over the whole world? The God who has concern for all people? Or is he a God who only cares what's going on in my life? Or in my church? Or in my country? Or on my half of the world? Is he a God that not only cares what's going on in the world, but who also sits in judgment upon the world? A God whose wrath is terrible? A God whose vengeance is awesome. A God whose judgment is devastating. Is that the God that we serve as well? Or is he only a God that's only able to love, to bless, to smile down on your head? You see, that's the God of so much of popular Christianity today, sadly. That's the God of the health and wealth gospel. He's a small God who only cares about you and about your life, and and making you more rich, and making you feel more content, and making you feel better about yourself, regardless of what's going on in the other 95% of the world. That's not God. That's the God of the, just tell yourself that God loves you, gospel. The God who has no anger. The God who doesn't care about sin, who just winks at it, pats you on the head, and tells you you're still okay. Is that the God that we serve? If this is the God that we believe in, brothers and sisters, then we will have no room for the incredible love of God. You see, the Israelites had become idolatrous. They'd forgotten who God was. That he was a God who blessed and cursed. That he was a God who saw sin and punished it. Who had designs not only for them, but also for the whole world. The Israelites were living in self-complacency, self-contentment. They were happy with the life that their little gods had given them. Just like the son with the judge. He had only known the blessings and the good things that his father had given him. He had forgotten that his father was also a judge and would bring justice. You see, the Israelites lost sight of their need. The need that they had. They lost sight of who they were. They lost sight of their own sin. And so they didn't need a Savior. They didn't need Jesus Christ to come into the world. You see, when we understand who God is, then we understand what He has actually done for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ bore the punishment against sin. He bore the wrath of God on the cross. That justice that God God spoke about concerning the nations is the justice that we deserve. And it was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, the Israelites had no need for that. And perhaps on top of that, they were growing smug as this catalog of nations went on. They were to be a light to the nations. The Israelites were the ones who were actually to proclaim the gospel to those nations. But you can imagine that here they are, sitting there, hearing the judgments against the nations. And they're starting to get filled with a sense of self-satisfaction. They actually like to hear that God's calling down this judgment. Because it's against their enemies. But then, in, chapter, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, things start to get a little close for the people of Israel. And God speaks his judgment against their brother to the south, the people of Judah. And you'll notice that the judgment spoken about Judah moves us into a whole new category here. In many ways, this judgment against Judah sets the stage for God's words against Israel. Of course, that doesn't downplay the reality of God's judgment against Judah. How could you? He still talks about them being consumed with fire. But at the same time, notice... What happens here? That the category changes. The nations were indicted for their sins against other human beings. But Judah is charged with sins against God. Against God's covenant. Sin not only in the context of a relationship with God, but sin in the context of a very special relationship with God. God's covenant of love with them. Judah had rejected the law of the Lord. The Lord had given his law to his people in love so they could live a life of obedience before him and be blessed. But Judah didn't want that. Judah failed to keep the decrees of the Lord. Now there's no big difference between those two words, the law, the decrees. But it's the same thing. Judah had put the Lord's covenant word, his law, his decrees, all the things that he had laid out before them, the way that they were to walk... And they cast them to the side, and they wanted to live by their own laws. And Judah had also sinned against the very heart of the covenant. They were serving idols. They were serving false gods. They were not serving the one true God. And so God's judgment, as he even speaks it about Judah, comes nearer to Israel. If he is the God who rules and judges the nations with whom he has a a distant and perhaps even a murky relationship with them, it's not always obvious what his relationship is to the nations. But if he even has a relationship with them, how much more so with his own people? The ones whom he has called his own. The ones with whom he has made his covenant. But his own people, Judah, have rejected the covenant. They've rejected his word. They've rejected that relationship with him. And so they too will be judged. The circling judgment is coming closer. Closer to Israel. The fires of judgment are spreading. And they'll soon come to the people of Israel at last. That brings us then to the Lord's case against Israel. And then at last, Amos brings God's word To Israel. Whatever smug satisfaction the people of Israel might have felt up to this point, any reason for it vanishes now. As Amos brings the word of God, who rules and judges the nations and all peoples to God's own people. Now notice here the character of the sins listed. We're talking about verses 6 and and on in our text, chapter 2. The nations were charged for crimes against humanity. Judah was charged for crimes against God's covenant. But Israel is charged for crimes against God's own covenant people. Especially the oppressed and the down and out of God's people. And it it almost goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways, that God's chosen people are precious to him. They're very precious to him. The people in Israel, the people in Judah, the people in the church. That's why the New Testament has this theme of special care for people in the church. Think of 1 Timothy 4 verse 10. We've put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, but especially of those who believe. Or why Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity let us do good to all people, but especially those who belong to the family of believers. God's people And then especially the poor and the downtrodden of God's people are very precious to God. He very much cares about them. And therefore, those people deserve our special care as well. But that is not what was happening in Israel. They weren't caring for those people. Rather, the Israelites were oppressing the down and out in their society to their own enrichment and pleasure. That's what's happening in each of those sins there that you see listed in verses 6 through 8. They sell the poor for sandals. They oppress the oppressed. And then verse 7, they use and they sexually abuse the helpless. And they bring their family in on it. And then verse 8, it almost gives the climax of this. They use garments and wine taken illegally from the poor, to engage in immorality and drunkenness in a place of false worship. Can you imagine? It's it's ever grosser and crueler crimes. It's like Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 12 that it's shameful even to mention what the pagans do in secret. Except we're not talking about the pagans here. We're talking about God's people. And we're not talking about what they do in secret either. We're talking about what they were doing in public places. This is part of the culture of their nation, of their people. Brothers and sisters, Amos isn't talking about what's going on out there. He's talking about what's going on in here, right in the church, so to speak. Can you imagine if this was a place where that sort of stuff was carried out? Where sin was winked at, where people were abused, where sex and drunkenness went unchecked. Can you imagine? Well, it happens. It happens. It happens in churches. Churches just like this one. It happens among Christian communities. You don't have to look far to find all sorts of evidence for this. This. You hear it all the time in the news. Sometimes it even shows up right in front of your own face, in your own community. The sort of stuff happens. And it happens when we forget who God is and what He has done, and when we reject His Word. Those are the sort of things that will happen if we do that. You see, that's the point of verses 9 through 11. That God is again reminding the people of Israel, as if he hasn't enough already, of who he is. But here he's more particular. He's not only the God who rules and judges all nations, but he says, I am the God who saved you. I'm the God who destroyed the Amorites, the wicked Amorites, Sihon and Og, even though you didn't stand a chance against him yourself. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt, brought you out with my own hand even though you couldn't have done that yourself? What would he say to us? I'm the God who poured out my covenant wrath on my own son. You want a God who loves? You want a God that's going to give you good things in this life? That's going to make you feel better? Then you need a God who is holy and just and righteous. Because in that one act of justice, he showed his incredible and invincible love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then he goes on. I'm the God that not only saved you, but I called you back as well. I gave you my word. I sent prophets to speak to you, to rebuke you, to correct you, to comfort you. I sent Nazarites to live upright and godly lives before you so that you'd know what a what a thankful life looks like in your own community. And to us, well, we have the Word made flesh. We have Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have the one true God who became a human being and who speaks God's Word to us. As Today as well. The one who at the same time embodied that perfect and sinless life in himself. But they didn't want to hear it. They told the prophets to shut up. They told the Nazarites to drink wine. To break their vows. Do we hear God's word? Do we submit ourselves to God's rule? Do we have place for him when he rebukes us? When he tells us that we're sinners in need of his grace or do we have no place for him when he rebukes our conduct, conduct when he shows us our sin even when he speaks of his own wrath and justice do we even know god's word is it a part of our lives is it the centerpiece of our lives or is it the centerpiece of our coffee tables It wasn't functioning among the Israelites. They didn't want to hear it. They rejected God's word. And they rejected God himself. He called them into a special relationship with him. But they told him by their actions and by their deeds and even by their words, we don't want you. And so on the day of judgment, they will get what they want. They'll get it. They'll live without God. It will be a time of pain, of suffering, of torment that will endure forever. How could it be otherwise? God is the God of of peace. God's the God of joy. God's the God of, of blessing and life. Of happiness. If you reject Him... All you get is pain and grief, suffering and torment. Without God, there is hell. Verse 13 I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. You will not survive. Note the irony in Amos's words. Jeroboam in his time was seen to be a great military success who had extended the borders of Israel. But God says, the swift, the strong, the warrior, the archer, the soldier, the horseman, even the bravest warrior will not escape. I will destroy them all. So the sentence is handed down. Thus says the Lord. What if the judge were to say, a different judge this time, our Father in Heaven, what if the judge were to say, that's your judgment, that's your sentence, but I'm going to send my Son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. You deserve my wrath, but He will bear it. You deserve to die, but he'll die for you. You deserve hell, but he'll suffer it for you. Would you repent? Would you confess your sins and believe in him? Would you believe that he bore the judgment that you deserve? so that you could receive all the blessings that he deserves? Well, brothers and sisters, he has. He has. That's what we commemorate next week in the Lord's Supper. That his body was broken and his blood was shed for the complete forgiveness of all our sins.